0: Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. The ceremonial groundbreaking was held on Friday in New Albany for Intel's $20 billion computer chip-making factories. In a moment, we'll present about 12 minutes of that event featuring Governor Mike DeWine, Ohio Senators Rob Portman and Sherrod Brown, Intel's CEO Pat Gelsinger, and President Joe Biden. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Kevin Landers talks with Intel officials about the huge amount of water the company will be using at that site and what happens to it. And Tracy Townsend has comments from Ohio's two candidates running for retiring Senator Rob Portman's seat about various topics. In the second half hour, I'll talk with a doctor about a clinical trial underway at University Hospitals in Cleveland for patients of AML, acute myeloid leukemia. And we'll wrap up the hour with Ohio Department of Health Director Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff talking about the latest coronavirus trends in Ohio and the new COVID booster shots that are now available. First up on Columbus Perspective, Intel held its ceremonial groundbreaking in New Albany Friday. We're presenting here portions of five speakers at that event, just a couple of minutes from each one of them, starting with Governor Mike DeWine.
1: We
2: celebrate today a great victory for Ohio, but an even greater victory for our country. We have learned over the last few years that there are essential items, necessities, that we must make here in the United States of America. We can, we must, and we will make them here. To Pat Gelsinger, to Kayvon Christie, to the whole great Intel team, we know that we're entering into a long-term relationship with you. By choosing Ohio, by choosing Ohio over 39 other locations across our country. Think of that. You recognized and you put your faith in Ohio and in our people. On behalf of the people of the state of Ohio, let me say to you, we will not let you down. (laughs) To my fellow Ohioans, This is a historic moment for the Buckeye State. Today, right now, in Ohio, there are young men, young women, attending our 14 public universities, and others in our 74 private liberal arts colleges and universities, studying mechanical, industrial engineering, other things, all of whom may one day work here at Intel or in some other great Ohio high-tech job. Just think of it. Today in Ohio, there are young men and women in our 23 great community colleges studying microelectronics or electronic engineering technology who will one day work here as manufacturing technicians. Think about it. Today in Ohio, now, There are young men and women in our 50 career centers, high school career centers, studying the STEM disciplines, who will one day work here in a wide variety of occupations, from high-tech manufacturing and cybersecurity to also the skilled trades, electricians, pipe fitters, HVAC technicians, sheet metal workers, who will. In the future, be building the 3rd and 4th FABs, the 5th and 6th FABs, and the 7th and 8th FABs, and on and on.
0: Governor Mike DeWine at Intel's groundbreaking. Also speaking, Republican U.S. Senator Rob Portman.
1: It is awesome to be here this morning with everyone to celebrate a huge victory for Ohio jobs and for Ohio's future and our country's future. As we break ground for the world's most advanced semiconductor fabs in the world, unbelievable, creating this ecosystem that will be the Silicon Heartland. Today, as we acknowledge all the hard work that went into bringing Intel to Ohio, we also acknowledge the hard work before us that now begins. As we begin to close America's competitiveness gap that has grown dangerously wide with regard to semiconductor manufacturing. I'm really proud that Ohioans will play an important role in closing this gap. Special thanks to CEO Pat Gelsinger and his Intel team for the confidence they have shown in the people of Ohio. Pat and I have had a lot of conversations in the last couple of years about what Ohio brings to the table. And I will tell you, as a Midwestern farm kid, he got it instinctively. He understood that our Midwestern values, hard work, resourcefulness, a legacy of manufacturing, and a willingness to embrace technology fit exactly what Intel needed. Incentives from the governor, the state legislature, and the local community didn't hurt. But honestly, every state had an incentive package. Ohio's pro jobs, pro business environment that Governor DeWine and the state legislature have nurtured helped. And the new federal infrastructure law helped. But, folks, none of this works without the skilled Ohio workforce that they need. Now it's up to all of us to earn the confidence that they have shown in Ohio, and we will.
0: Republican U.S. Senator Rob Portman. He was followed by Ohio's Democratic U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown.
1: Ohio- no one's
3: know what's happened over the last 30, 40 years. Corporations searched the globe for cheap labor. First, they went to anti-union states closing down plants in Mansfield and Cleveland and Akron and Circleville and moved to, to anti-union states in the South. They lobbied for tax breaks and bad trade deals to move more manufacturing jobs overseas, always, always in search of lower wages. Wall Street rewarded them for it over and over and over again. America invented the semiconductor, as you know, yet today, 90% of them are made overseas. That stops today. Today today with American investment with, with Intel's investment in American production, American workers, with the CHIPS Act, with all the work we're doing with President Biden in the House and Senate, we're putting in place a new pro-American pro-union industrial policy. The technology of the future won't just be developed in America. We're really good at that. We've done that for generations. It will be made in America, in the industrial heartland, in Ohio, all over this state, central Ohio and going out from here, where we built the engines of progress for generations. In this state, we have the history, we have the talent, we have the ingenuity. And finally, finally, we have a federal government that recognizes that. This is what so many of us have been working for our whole careers. Good paying jobs, American supply chain, work for thousands and thousands of building trades workers. You know when you love this country, you fight for the people who make it work. And today we break ground on an investment in our greatest asset in our country, American workers. Thank you.
0: Also speaking at Intel's groundbreaking on Friday was Intel's CEO, Pat Gelsinger.
4: As you think about this moment, you know, I just ask you, what aspect of your life is not becoming more digital? You know, every aspect of health, every aspect of social, every aspect of transportation is becoming more digital. And everything digital runs on semiconductors and our ability to work remotely through the pandemic was because of semiconductors, to stay connected with our families and friends, to have virtual schooling and healthcare care through this period of time. Everything, semiconductors, and our national defense is becoming more acutely dependent on semiconductors. And do we want our national defense to have the most advanced semiconductors in the world? You bet we do. And do we want to be dependent on foreign sources for those? You bet we don't. And for our entire history, we at Intel have performed the majority of our R&D and manufacturing right here in the U.S. We are the only U.S. chip maker that does all the R&D manufacturing leadership, technology development in the United States. And as we came to this period in our strategy, we put our chips on the table. Yeah, I like that joke too. And we did it, we put our chips on the table to help the U.S. regain its manufacturing heart as well as unquestioned technology leadership. And our partnership in Ohio is off to a great start. And under Governor DeWine, Lieutenant Governor, you know, this, you know, we just feel, come on down. Ohio wants us. and It's just been an incredible relationship. This great state of Ohio has this tradition of manufacturing. You all like to build stuff. And that's exactly what we're going to do together. We are going to build the most advanced stuff in the world
5: right here in Ohio.
0: The final speaker at Intel's ceremonial groundbreaking Friday in New Albany was President Joe Biden. Here's about three minutes of what he had to say.
6: You know, it's fitting to break ground for America's future here in Ohio. Think about it. There's kind of a tradition here. The Wright brothers, Neil Armstrong, John Glenn, they defined America's spirit, a spirit of daring and innovation. Pat Chase laid out Intel's vision that builds on that legacy. A brand new $20 billion campus, 7,000 construction jobs, union construction jobs, 3,000 full-time jobs that will pay an average of 135,000 a year. And here's a critical piece. Intel is using a project labor agreement for this investment. For the folks at home, these are agreements that contractors, subcontractors, and union put in place before construction begins. They ensure major projects are handled by well-trained, well-prepared, highly-skilled workers. They resolve disputes ahead of time, ensuring the safer work sites, avoiding disruptions and work stoppages that can cause extensive delays and down the line. These agreements make sure construction is top notch and projects are on time, on task and on budget. One third of the core inflation last year was due to higher prices of automobiles because of the shortage of the semiconductors needed to build those automobiles. Folks, we need to make these chips right here in America to bring down everyday costs and create good jobs. Don't take my word for it. You heard Pat. Listen to the business leaders across this country. They're making decisions right now about where to invest and produce these chips. China, Japan, South Korea, European Union, all these places are investing tens of billions of dollars to attract chip manufacturers to their countries. But industry leaders are choosing us, the United States, because they see America's back and America's leading the way. I mean, this is incredible, making a tiny computer chip the size of a fingertip, They're sure showing what we've always believed. And I want to emphasize this and I'll get out of your hair. I mean this. You've heard me say this for a long time. There is nothing, I mean this from the bottom of heart, there is nothing, not a single thing beyond our capacity as a nation if we do it together as the United States of America. And that's what we're going to do. This is an inflection point in everything. We're going to look back on this period 20 years from now and say that's when it began to change. God bless you all and may God protect our troops. Thank you, thank you, thank you.
0: President Joe Biden speaking Friday in New Albany. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV.
7: Thank you for joining us for face the state i'm tracy townsend there is a lot of excitement about the intel facility there are also concerns including the possibility of issues with the intel campus water supply it will become columbus's largest consumer of water 10dvs kevin
8: landers takes those concerns straight to intel millions of gallons of water from hoover reservoir will power Intel's semiconductor plants and a viewer wanted to know how clean will that water be when it returns back to the city Intel estimates it will need 5 million gallons of water a day to turn its blank silicon disks into circuit boards called wafers.
9: So with semiconductor manufacturing, water is an important ingredient. We use it to clean the wafers. We use it to supply our industrial equipment like cooling towers.
8: But before a single drop of city water touches a single one of its disks, Intel sends that water through its own water filtration system, which the company says produces pure water.
9: And that's water that's so clean, it is completely free of any particles or ions or, or different types of you know trace minerals, you know things that are important for us when we're, we're drinking water. But those are things that we can't have when we're using the water to clean wafers because they would damage the
8: product. When Intel is done with that water, it's returned to the city, which is treated again. This process is part of what Intel calls its net water policy.
1: So
9: right now, about 80 to 90% of the water that we take in from the water source will be used and returned back to the city. Now to make up for that balance, that 10 to 20%, we actually partner with nonprofit organizations, we fund their projects to go restore water back to the greater community.
8: So how clean is that water that's returned to the city? The water that you send back, can you say with 100% confidence that it is chemical free?
9: So the water that we use in our factory, before we discharge it, we absolutely treat it to standards set by the EPA, and then we test it before, before it gets sent back.
8: Intel plans to be net water positive by the year 2030, which is five years after it opens its plant in Licking County. At Hoover Reservoir, Kevin Landers, 10TV News.
7: The city of Columbus says the water Intel returns to the city never goes back into the public drinking water and is not allowed to flow untreated into a river system. Intel's future neighbors, Johnstown, is in need of a new mayor and city council president. This is coming after a recall election that more than 70 percent of the people there voted to get rid of both President Marvin Block and Mayor Chip Dutcher. The recall vote is coming after the community raised some questions about leadership. Intel coming to our state puts Ohio in the national spotlight. It's something both candidates for U.S. Senate are talking about.
10: J.D. Vance. I think it's a great thing for the state, uh, really, really great thing, and really a great thing for the country because, you know, I'm a big believer that we can't let the Chinese manufacture everything for us. We actually need to have our own native manufacturing capacity. And one of the most important things is computer chips. So I think it'll be good. It'll provide a lot of jobs for people in Ohio. Uh, but more importantly, it'll actually make sure we're less dependent on the Chinese long term.
5: Tim Ryan. I'm proud to have supported and pushed the CHIPS Act, which is helping make this a reality. Uh, but this is this is huge. And this is going to transform the state and I think take us to the next level. So we're going to continue to push an industrial policy that brings back this kind of high end manufacturing.
7: We also asked both of the, the candidates about the president's plan to forgive up to twenty thousand dollars in student loan debt for millions of people. And they both say it's not a good idea. Tim Ryan.
5: I think it sends the wrong message. I I totally understand. We're still paying off uh, my wife's student loans and the interest rates are outrageous. Um, But the the reality of it is we could probably do this in a better way, get those uh, interest rates down, allow students to renegotiate. My problem really with it is, is one, There's a lot of people who didn't go to college that are struggling right now, and we need to make sure we're helping those people, which is why I think a tax cut is the best way to kind of help everybody. And the second thing is, like, it's not doing anything to rein in the cost of college. We're going to be right back here in five or 10 years because people are still taking out loans to pay for expensive college. And, you know, if we're going to do something like this, it needs to be directly tied with reigning in college costs.
10: J.D. Vance. I think it's a big mistake because it, it basically asks people who have not gone to college to pay for people who have gone to college. And you know more importantly, it doesn't fix any, any of the underlying problems with, with our college system, which is tuition is way too high, and the colleges have not done really anything to try to fix that problem. So uh, if you look at where a lot of the additional tuition money goes into, administrators are making more money, but are more students getting educated? No. Are students getting a better education? I don't think so. And I think we really need to be honest with ourselves that the college costs have to come down. Bailing out student debt is actually not the way to do that. What I, I would propose to actually is if we want to give student debt forgiveness, we should make the colleges pay for it because then they might actually be on the hook for some of the problem they're causing.
7: Senator Sherrod Brown talked about student loan forgiveness during a visit to the Mid-Ohio Food Collective this week. He says debt relief is only part of the plan. I
3: think that's a first step. I mean, we help. You know, we, we, we should be providing free community college. People ought to be able to go to Columbus State um, or go to uh, to uh, LC mm-hmm. in her area um, and not accrue this debt. People, we're going to need we're going to need thousands of job training of people trained um, in the trades uh, for not just the infrastructure bill, but also of course Intel in this part of the state, uh, and that means scaling up these these building trades four or five years. Apprentice four or five year apprenticeship programs we're going to need this is much more than forgiving loans it's also making higher education but not necessarily college uh, traditional not necessarily four year but making those kinds of training that kind of training available to a broad swath of people and once the president has kind of rolled all that out i think there will be a very different reception A viral
7: social media post claims President Biden's student loan plan will cost taxpayers more than $2,000 each. Brandon Lewis from our National Verify team explains the origins of that
11: estimate. After President Joe Biden announced his plan to forgive up to $20,000 in federal student loans, many of you began asking us how much the plan is going to cost. Early estimates calculated the government will have to pay about $330 billion. This prompted Senator Ted Cruz to say in a statement opposing Biden's plan that this will cost every taxpayer an average of $2,100. Several Verify viewers then reached out to ask if the plan will raise their taxes by that amount. So let's verify. Will the average taxpayer have to pay $2,100 to cover the cost of the student loan forgiveness program? Our sources are the White House, the Internal Revenue Service Tax Code, Senator Ted Cruz's office, and Andrew Louts with the nonpartisan National Taxpayers Union Foundation. Cruz's office tells Verify they got that 2100 number from the National Taxpayers Union Foundation and sent us a link to a blog post written by Louts. He wrote that if one were to divide an early program estimate of $330 billion by the number of Americans who pay taxes, then the average taxpayer would hypothetically be on the hook for almost $2,100. But that's neither how taxes work nor how the debt forgiveness plan would necessarily be funded. And Loutz acknowledged this in his post. First, taxes in the U.S. are based on a percentage of your income, meaning everyone pays a different dollar figure. Second, since Biden is forgiving the loans using an executive order, he can't raise taxes to pay for his plan. Only Congress can do that.
5: There are no taxes going up to pay for this policy. But what we do think is important for taxpayers to know is that we all bear the cost of these policies. And so, um, you know, whether it's through decreased spending in the future, increased taxes or increased borrowing, taxpayers will ultimately be on the hook for covering the cost of this policy.
11: So, no, the average taxpayer will not have to pay $2,100 to cover the cost of the student loan forgiveness program. With your Verify, I'm
7: Brandon Lewis. Remember, if you have something you'd like us to verify, contact us on social media or send an email to verify at 10TV.com. Lawyers made their case to have an independent review of the documents the FBI pulled from former President Donald Trump's Florida estate. We ask both candidates for U.S. Senate in our state to weigh in on this FBI investigation. Tim Ryan.
5: The presidents break the law. They should be prosecuted like everybody else. And you know, that that they're looking into that. And I would just encourage them to follow the letter of the law, give the president, former president, due process, like everybody else would have. And then if he did something wrong, he needs to be prosecuted.
7: JD Vance.
10: I think the leadership of the FBI has to be more honest with the American people about why they're doing this, about what they're hoping to do.
7: J.D. Vance has former President Trump's endorsement. We did ask him if the FBI investigation changes his opinion on having that endorsement.
10: I happen to have the president's support. I think he'll be actually campaigning uh, at least once in Ohio in the next couple of months, and certainly we'll be there with him.
7: Narcan is being used more and more across our state. Up next, see what's happening to get that life-saving tool in the hands of even more people. Ohio families are struggling to get food on the table, but help is on the way. Find out what the support coming from the Mid-Ohio Food Collective can do to help.
8: Thanks for listening.
1: This is Doug Ute, Executive Director of the Ohio High School Athletic Association. High school coaches can be the biggest influence on kids having a positive experience in sports. Sports set the foundation for life lessons that remain long after playing days are over.
4: This is Gene Smith. Please join Life Sports at The Ohio State University and the Ohio High School Athletic Association as we partner with the Susan Crown Exchange on its Million Coaches Challenge. Get involved and learn more at go.osu.edu/coachBeyond.
12: When kids need medical care, they will often face stressful and life-changing experiences. They miss out on the things that make being a kid fun. Starlight Children's Foundation has delivered happiness to 17 million seriously ill kids and their families at more than 800 children's hospitals and healthcare facilities. Our programs entertain and inspire hospitalized kids. Learn more at starlight.org. That's starlight.org.
0: This is Columbus perspective on the fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10 TV.
7: This morning, we're getting a look at just how many lives have been saved with Narcan in Columbus. From the start of 2021 until July of this year, Columbus firefighters responded to more than 4,000 calls where they use Narcan. That's the drug that revives people who have overdosed. That drug was instrumental in saving a man's life back in May. Rihanna Cruz is one of CODA's strategic responders. She she was called to check on a man who may have overdosed while using opioids. After CPR and two full boxes of Narcan, Cruz says that man is alive today.
13: I'm hoping that I saved a lot of heartache and heartbreak and you know, really gave him and, and those who loved him another chance.
7: Well, incidents like that are why Narcan is available for public access through the Alcohol, Drug, and Mental Health Board. Rescue kits are available at multiple CODA locations throughout Columbus. And those kits were also available for free at several distribution locations for National Overdose Awareness Day. And that's where we met David Brown. Brown knows firsthand how important it is to make Narcan accessible. He says someone once gave him a drug with unknown substances in it, and Narcan saved his life.
6: Narcan was the saving, saving grace. And my mom was so happy that I was alive, scared of the death.
7: And Brown says everyone should pick some up if they have the opportunity, especially if you know someone who is struggling. According to one local expert, other treatment options can be just as vital for preventing overdose deaths.
5: Another trend I, I would argue that you see is a lot more access to medication-assisted treatment um, in, in different varied, varied, various uh, clinics and telemedicine options that have, have popped up for these patients.
7: In fact, a new study from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services reports telehealth services have really made a huge impact. Patients in the study who use telehealth stayed in treatment longer, and reduced their risk of medically treated overdose. Since the pandemic, services like that have become much more common. There are some resources to tell you about that are available online right now. You can visit BeatTheStigma.org for resources provided by the Ohio Opioid Education Alliance. Franklin County Commissioners approved $55,000 for the HOPE Task Force. HOPE is an acronym for Heroin Overdose Prevention and Education, and it comes from grant money from the Ohio Attorney General Law Enforcement Diversion Program to the Franklin County Sheriff's Office. The Franklin County Commissioners also voted to approve and provide funding to the Mid-Ohio Food Collective and other pantries across Central Ohio.
14: More people to get involved. Get involved with your local food pantry in
10: your community. You know, they could use the dollars, they could use the food, they can use food drives, but most importantly, they need your help, you know, in making sure that no resident in Franklin County goes without.
7: Mid-Ohio says the biggest challenge... Next to volunteers is struggling with the supply chain issues and getting food supply. The two and a half million dollar resolution should help meet the high demand, at least for this fall. Senator Sherrod Brown, again, he visited the Mid-Ohio Food Bank to talk about the next farm bill. The previous farm bill was passed in 2018 as the Agriculture Improvement Act. It provided farmers with funding, invested in local food businesses and established a program to make healthy food more accessible.
3: Farm bill, if done right, uh, will focus on getting food on, will focus much on local foods um, without the transportation costs and moving around the country, getting local foods, fresher foods, more nutritious foods on people's tables. It will increase the prosperity of rural Ohio, which is always struggling, um, and it will obviously help those families.
7: One item, Senator Brown says he's considered is free school lunches for children, but he says he will need more bipartisan support for that to successfully make it to the final draft of the bill. You can help feed our neighbors here in Columbus. Life Care Alliance needs more hands to run their Meals on Wheels program. Day-to-day staffing challenges have been delaying routes.
2: And the weekends are a great time for families or individuals uh, to go out and deliver
15: meals.
7: All you have to do to get started is head to the Life Care Alliance website. We've posted a link for you at 10TV.com slash featured links. Columbus is going to receive millions of dollars in federal funding to help make housing more affordable. We asked Mayor Andrew Ginther how it's going to be spent. We're seeing more and more unionization in Ohio. Up next, what group is pushing to organize and who's supporting them?
0: Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. This is Columbus Perspective on The Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV.
7: Here in Ohio, some employees are calling for change in their respective workplaces. Columbus Museum of Art workers are looking to unionize, citing unfair labor practices during the pandemic. 10TV's Ashley Bornanson spoke with them.
13: A lot of it is um, wanting to have more of a, of a say in decisions that are made at the museum. We're the staff that is here every day. We're interacting with the public.
12: Nicole Romy says CMA Workers United is calling for fair wages to retain staff members and safer working conditions for the frontline workers. A condition that they say was compromised during the pandemic.
11: I think a big part of it was the fact that uh, our staff was, was reduced by a significant number. Um, our staff was, uh, was- asked to you know, be in the building prior to uh, uh, when vaccines
12: were available. The group is joined by support from other local union efforts, including Wex Workers United, who say nonprofit workers are facing what they call the passion
13: tax. I think all of us do love what we do. And we want these better working conditions so that we can, so that it can be sustainable, so that these can be our livelihoods truly in addition to our passion. And the
12: Columbus Education Association.
10: The union uh, equals the playing field. That the bosses have a lot of the power, and this is a way for the, the workers to get their voice heard. And it, it's important that you listen to the workers' voice.
12: All this comes as nationwide unions are on the rise. In the last nine months, there's been a 58% increase in the number of petitions filed. And the number of workers organized has also increased. Um, A lot of that activity has been in the retail sector and the nonprofit sector. Kate Bronfenbrenner of Cornell's School of Industrial and Labor Relations says unsafe pandemic working conditions was the final straw for many workers. Workers, you know, it was one thing to sacrifice when it was hard times, it's another thing if the sacrifice means risking the, your life and the life of your family. In a statement, Columbus Museum of Art says, in part, "The museum is invested in participating in a fair and respectful bargaining process, ensuring all staff have an opportunity to make their voices heard." In Columbus, Ashley Bornanson, Ten TV News.
7: We are going to continue to monitor the status on the negotiation process. And we'll keep you updated on air and, of course, online. $146 million is going to go toward keeping the low-income home energy assistance program going. Now, the state controlling board approved the funding this week. It's also going to provide rental assistance. At the same time, the city of Columbus is getting $2 million in federal money for affordable housing. The competitive federal grant was distributed by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, and it provides funding to the city through the year 2025. Funding from the federal grant is expected to serve more than 150 properties and educate 8,000 residents on how to keep homes safe. Teddy tvs Kevin Landers talked with Mayor Ginther about this grant.
8: How competitive
15: was this grant, and where will that money go specifically to help these low-income families uh, have a stable home? We're excited, and we want to thank President Biden, Secretary Fudge. She's a former mayor, uh, so she knows exactly how important this is. This is really part of our overall housing strategy uh, under the preserve uh, pillar. We want folks that are in uh, their homes to be able to age in place. Uh, And as you know, the housing market is uh, off the charts here in central Ohio, and we want to make sure that there are resources available uh, that uh, s- folks that are seniors are able to invest in their properties, so they can stay and they keep them up to the code, make sure they're safe, uh, you know, making sure that they're able to make improvements to the home, that they'll be able to continue to age in place there. Maybe when they have limited mobility or other challenges with uh, accessibility. So we're really excited about this very competitive process. Uh, we're excited to have won it for the people of Columbus. Uh, we think it's going to make a significant difference in hundreds of homeowners. Uh, ability to stay in their homes and enjoy, uh, you know, retirement.
7: Lots of families are taking the time to get away. Your travels, though, can be close to home, especially if you enjoy what's called heritage tourism. The National Trust for Historic Preservation in the United States defines it as traveling to experience the places, artifacts, and activities that authentically represent the stories and people of the past. And heritage tourism can include cultural, historic, and natural resources. I was really excited to moderate a conversation at Columbus Metropolitan Club Luncheon with two terrific experts on this. Napoleon Bell, who is a co-founder of the Heritage Tours, and Ohio History Connection CEO Megan Wood. Now you may remember we talked with Wood, who's the first female CEO of the History Connection. She and her team are working to get Ohio's Hopewell Ceremonial Earthworks on the list of UNESCO World Heritage Sites, with the Everglades National Park, the Grand Canyon here in the U.S., and internationally, locations including Stonehenge.
13: What I want to say about Stonehenge is that if you go to Newark Earthworks in the Octagon, there's a little circle on the side, and Stonehenge can fit in that little tiny circle. So you know, it's like we have what we have is even bigger, um, but. Uh, Uh, so you know it's this highest designation of um, universal uh, human uh, value and it just are excuse me the outstanding universal value yeah there we go Um, but you know it's this it's this expression of human genius and um, if you're not familiar with the octagon in newark there's an 18.6 year cycle of the moon which i am not going to explain right now Um, but there's a, a time in that cycle where the the moon um, rises and sets at the northernmost and southernmost um, point, and two points in that octagon are, you know, aligned with that perfectly. So it just shows the the genius of the culture, you know, whose um, remains that we live among. And then
7: we do we vote on this next year? Or do, do you have some special designation?
13: There's um, a committee um, of UNESCO that votes on it, and they'll vote next summer. So we submitted our application, which is really like a very long and technical book um, that we submitted, and it was our application was accepted, um, and they'll be voting on it um, next June probably.
7: And you already explained that Stonehenge could fit into the space here, so I'm going to throw some more shade. Who's our competition? <laughs>
13: Ha <laughs> ha you know, I, I don't know that it's a zero-sum, uh, you know, that there's only so many votes. So I don't know if we're, we're not necessarily up against, you know, they can add as many as they want. Um, I, I think we're still the best, but um, uh, but uh, no other World Heritage Sites in Ohio, um, and the closest ones are uh, Cahokia Mounds and uh, some of the Frank Lloyd Wright sites.
7: It's all about having that international draw here. Those Hopewell ceremonial earthworks were used by the indigenous indigenous, Native Americans as places of ceremony, social gathering, trade, worship, and honoring the dead. Just amazing. Something you ought to get out to see. We appreciate that you've joined us here today. Have a great week.
0: That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station WBNS 10 TV from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV.
16: Vision loss. Is not something that you feel
2: until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular
17: degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. Eleven million people in the United States
9: have macular degeneration.
15: So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked.
17: Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. The future depends on teachers. Every day, teachers are shaping our tomorrows, starting their students on journeys that will change the course of history. Right now, in a classroom somewhere in the United States, there's a teacher inspiring a future scientist who will make preventing pandemics their life's work, sharpening the mind of an aspiring environmentalist who will help combat climate change and generating possibilities for a student who'll be the first in their family to graduate college. It all starts with teachers who meet challenges with creativity, who reinvent education for the future, who work towards a school system that lifts up every child, regardless of race, income, or zip code, and who enable the full potential of our students, our communities, and our country. Explore a career that leaves a legacy you can be proud of. Shape the future teach learn more and receive free support at teach.org
0: this is columbus perspective on the fan Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Dr. Robert Ang, who is the president and CEO of Vorbio, which is based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Dave. Thanks for talking to us. We're going to talk about acute myeloid leukemia and a clinical trial that is uh, actually going to be uh, its available here in Ohio. Let's talk about acute myeloid leukemia, or AML. What is it?
16: Sure. So AML is a kind of cancer It's actually a cancer of the blood system. So in your bone marrow, there are cells that actually produce all the um, cells necessary for survival that make up your circulatory system, So, including red blood cells, all kinds of immune cells and platelets. And what happens in certain people is that these uh, cells in the bone marrow can actually result in cancer. They can start replicating uncontrollably. Uh, They will take over the bone marrow, they'll squeeze out the healthy cells. Initially, patients might feel a little tired or weak or or, um, maybe get some fevers or infections, but soon it can um, really uh, cause dramatic issues and, you know, is inevitably fatal. And AML affects um, over 20,000 people in the United States every year. It can affect uh, people at any age range, although it certainly biases more towards elderly years. Uh, and and so it's, it's a disease that's really terrible. and something we want to do something about.
0: Is this one of those types of cancers, too, that sometimes or maybe even oftentimes will respond well to chemotherapy, but then it's only a matter of time until that begins to wane?
16: Uh, Dave, you're exactly right. So chemotherapy is actually one of the mainstays of therapy for uh, AML. Uh, however, as you mentioned, uh, patients that very quickly relapse uh, following chemotherapy. And so there's a new therapy that was pioneered now about um, 50 years ago, uh, which is called an uh, a, a, a allogeneic stem cell transplant. So stem cell transplant is where you can take bone marrow cells from a healthy donor. It could be a relative, it could be a match stranger. And you can actually transplant these cells into the bone marrow of uh, patients with AML. And, and really, it kind of swaps healthy cells for the disease cells. And that really was a revolution in its time, that you could actually replace damaged bone marrow with healthy bone marrow. And the problem with that, though, is exactly the same as chemo, that many patients relapse their cancer following a uh, stem cell transplant.
0: So the company that you head, Vorbio, has a new uh, hopeful silver bullet, I guess, you're working on, right?
16: Yes, we hope so. Uh, It's still very much in in early stages of development. Uh, But what we're working on at Vorbio is a new next-generation stem cell transplant. So what we do is we take the same kind of cells that you'd use for a regular uh, stem cell transplant from a healthy donor, but we specially process these cells in order for these cells to become treatment resistant. And that in itself is, is, is a potential really uh, real game changer here because what often happens is that patients receive a regular stem cell transplant, their cancer relapses, and now you're really stuck because anything you use to treat the cancer uh, will hurt the transplant And if you kill the transplant, you'll kill the the patient. And so what we are aiming to do is is create these treatment-resistant stem cell transplants and then potentially even treat the patient after the transplant to really hold the cancer at bay or even aim for cures.
0: It's interesting. So uh, how did you go about uh, finding this way to do that without harming healthy cells?
16: So this is a true innovation that came about from uh, our scientific founder, Siddhartha Mukherjee. Your listeners may recognize him. He is a Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, wrote uh, several books, including one called The Emperor of All Maladies, which really describes the history of cancer. And he really um, thought creatively here about trying to use a different method and protect healthy cells while being able to kill cancer cells. Uh, So really quite a revolutionary way of thinking about treatment of cancer.
0: We had a, a high-profile uh, television weatherman here in Columbus who died of AML, and it was a, you know, just a heartbreaking roller coaster ride. These folks uh, are just going through an unbelievable experience when they're when they're dealing with this disease.
16: You're exactly right. It, it, it's very traumatic for for these patients. Uh, chemotherapy is not kind. A transplant is not an easy process, uh, and then oftentimes patients come out of that hopeful that uh, you've knocked down the cancer, but inevitably it it comes back uh, very very rapidly. And so that's really where um, we think VOR comes in and that this innovative new approach could really be a game changer. And we have the opportunity that we're actually starting clinical trials now for this uh, therapy in in several sites around the U.S., including right there in Ohio in, in Cleveland.
0: This is University Hospitals in Cleveland. How do folks get involved? Who is it that you're looking for?
16: Yeah, so we are looking to treat patients with AML. uh, And uh, on top of that, the patients need to be close to or or, or are transplant eligible. Your uh, treating physicians should certainly uh, know about that. And then thirdly, we are reserving this trial for patients who are really at high risk of relapse. And again, your doctors can help you determine that. Uh, but what we're doing right there in in, in, in that site, uh, as well as um, uh, eight other sites around the U.S., is uh, enrolling patients um, who now receive a transplant called VOR33. This is the next generation, uh, potentially treatment-resistant transplant. And uh, in the period after the transplant, uh, we are treating patients with myelotag, which is a uh, anti-cancer drugs, really meant to keep the cancer at bay. So this trial is, is ongoing right now, and I think the best way for your listeners to find out more about it is to go to our website. It's uh, vorbio.com, that's V-O-R-B-I-O.com. There's a tab at the top, which says patients and caregivers, and there's plenty of information and videos featuring what we're doing, including details about our clinical sites.
0: Talking with Dr. Robert Ang, he's the president and CEO of Bio. I would imagine that this disease, too, what makes it even more frustrating is when folks are going through these treatments, their immune system is compromised, and then when you've got something like a pandemic going on, that makes it even more complicated.
16: Absolutely, Dave. Uh, You know, this is a disease that will sap you from the inside out, Uh, you know, making you weak, stealing resources, uh, you know, as you've mentioned compromising your immune system uh, and, and you can be subject to all kinds of infections. And so I think the more we can try to do something about this, uh, you know, the better we'll be.
0: When folks go through this clinical trial, doctor, how long might it be before, if, if it is working, how, how quickly might that be determined?
16: So there's a couple of stages to this. Uh, the, the transplant itself uh, is being tested over actually the first few days. Of, uh, of the transplant process. And so you actually know whether the transplant um, starts working within you know a couple of weeks of, of the transplant. This all generally happens when the patient is in hospital uh, recovering from their transplant. Wow. And then after that, uh, we're continually testing uh, this drug in terms of its ability to uh, protect your blood system from you know, the typical toxicities you might receive from anti cancer therapies. And that we do over over several months. And ultimately, what we hope to do is result in prolonged remission of cancer or, or cures. And we'll certainly see that over time, too.
0: That's great. Uh, Dr. Robert Ang, President, CEO, Vorbio. What's the website again for folks to get more info?
16: Yeah, so it is vorbio.com. That's V O R B I O.com.
0: Dr. Ang, thanks so much for your time today, and good luck with this clinical
16: study. I appreciate you, uh, Dave, and, and uh, thank you for your listening, too.
17: We don't want you on our team. You're too slow and fat. This is Weight Bias.
15: I'm worried about your weight.
17: Don't you care what other people think? Millions who live and are affected by obesity face weight bias every
13: day. You're not the
6: right fit for this job.
13: Unfair judgment by others. Just stop eating so much and exercise some. You lose all this weight.
17: These people often blame themselves. It's just me. Nobody likes me.
16: I do exercise and eat right. And I talk to my doctor.
17: Weight bias hurts. Everyone deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. Your words and actions matter. Let's stop weight bias. Let's work together. Be part of the solution. Go to stopweightbias.com and learn more. A public service message from Obesity Action Coalition.
0: This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. This past Thursday, the Ohio Department of Health held a news conference with an update on the coronavirus in Ohio, as well as information about booster shots that are now available. This is Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, director of the Ohio Department of Health. It runs about eight minutes.
14: Well, the start of school and the college and high school football seasons signals that fall and cooler weather are right around the corner. It's a time when all of us will likely begin spending more of our time indoors, where, of course, there's more opportunity for respiratory illnesses like flu and COVID-19 to be spread from one to another. Fortunately, in Ohio, we are still seeing uh, around uh, 25,000 COVID-19 cases a week, And, and the data shows that most of those people are no longer getting seriously ill. So that's the good news. Despite seeing a large number of cases, most of the people are not getting seriously ill. Hospitalizations have remained low and are not posing an overwhelming burden on our healthcare system, as we used to see routinely with COVID waves, particularly with overall numbers like we're currently seeing. In fact, only about 5% of our hospital beds and intensive care unit beds are currently being occupied by COVID-19 patients. Thankfully, our deaths, too, remain comparatively very low. Nevertheless, we continue to lose lives to COVID-19. Indeed, while we're no longer recording daily deaths in the hundreds, sadly, we still lose around a dozen lives to this illness in Ohio every day. Because COVID-19 is still spreading nationally as well as globally and new variants are almost a certainty, we really cannot let our guard down. This virus has shown a robust ability to mutate and variant strains have driven our last two surges in Ohio, both Delta and Omicron. Also, COVID-19 isn't the only virus of concern that we run into, especially in the cooler months. For the past two winters, influenza levels have been remarkably low here in Ohio, likely in part because we were socially distancing and wearing masks in response to what was a novel pandemic. Now, though, with much of our everyday life looking more like we remember it, and so many of us gathering again in schools and recreational facilities and businesses, that the chance for the flu to make a big comeback is very real, uh, much as in fact, we've already seen in Australia and much of the rest of the world's Southern Hemisphere. For that reason, I would highly recommend fall flu shots and encourage everyone to stay up to date with their COVID-19 vaccine series. This is particularly important for Ohioans who are most vulnerable, including those ages 60 and older, and those with significant underlying health conditions. Now, staying up to date on any vaccine booster series is important. And what it means is getting a booster shot when it's available and appropriate. And that's what I wanna focus on in some more detail now, particularly in relation to the COVID-19 vaccine. In Ohio, more than 68% of adults have in fact completed their primary vaccine series of two shots. That's good news. That's about 6.2 million people. Of those though, only about 3.6 million have received the third dose or booster dose. That leaves 2.6 million Ohio adults who've not taken advantage of that next important step of getting a booster. And data has shown us that getting a booster can be crucial in terms of building long-lasting immunity. And now our booster shot has been updated to help your immune system recognize both the original or ancestral strain of the virus, as well as... The recent Omicron subvariants, BA4 and BA5. Two familiar manufacturers have had their updated boosters approved. The updated Pfizer booster was approved for those ages 12 and older, while the updated Moderna booster is for those ages 18 and older. And as you'll recall, these two vaccines are extremely similar in terms of their uh, chemical makeup. In both cases, The boosters can be given at least two months after completion of your primary vaccine series or two months after a previous booster dose. These updated shots are a booster dose only. They're not part of the primary vaccine series, which still begins with the vaccine so many of us have already received. In anticipation of the arrival of these new fall boosters, Ohio providers were given the opportunity to pre-order these updated boosters in late August, and the first shipments arrived in state almost as soon as they have been approved. That means that if you're ready to get your fall booster, they're already available through many providers, and we'd encourage you to contact your provider, your local health department, or a pharmacy to check out the availability there. Now, who needs The fall boosters are, in fact, approved for those 12 and older, provided there's been at least two months since your last COVID-19 shot. But the people for whom the updated fall booster should be a particularly high priority are, of course, those more at risk for developing severe illness or dying from COVID-19. Now, as I mentioned earlier, that includes those who are immunocompromised, those who have a variety of underlying medical conditions, or those who are age 60 or older. Indeed, while COVID-19 hospitalizations and deaths are now generally lower in Ohio than earlier in the year, our older residents remain, as I noted previously, at the greatest risk of developing severe illness. One year ago, in September of 2021, 52% of the state's COVID deaths were among those age 70 and older. In August of this year, so last month, 77% of Ohio deaths were among that age group, 70 and older. Also, recent CDC national data have shown that even with so many having recovered from past infection, if you are still an unvaccinated adult, you remain 4.6 times more likely to be hospitalized with COVID than if you were vaccinated and boosted. But if you're 65 and older and unvaccinated, those numbers are worse. You're 6.3 times more likely to be hospitalized than you are vaccinated peer. Of course, we have long known that age is, in fact, one of the primary risk factors for developing severe COVID illness. And this data serves to underscore the importance of adding the latest booster to your vaccine series, especially if you're an elder Ohioan and getting your primary series started if you remain any unvaccinated eligible Ohioan. Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff from this
0: past Thursday. He's the director of the Ohio Department of Health.